our world today, it seems that so often leadership is lacking or it's corrupted. It's misused or it's abused. You could watch or read the news today, tomorrow, any day, and at every level, every sector of society, there's fine corrupt leadership in government, in organizations, in business, even sadly in the church. So we may see a need for healthy leadership, but simply to wonder, is that even possible in the world today? Is the best case just some, some moderately bad leadership, slightly better than others? So it's easy for me, I think for us, to become cynical about even the potential of leadership. If we meet or hear of what we think might be a good leader, we, we wonder what's really going on underneath. This, of course, is not a modern struggle, but it's been one in every age, in every society, in every time in history. In the midst of that, though, there, there is a longing inside of all people everywhere for quality, healthy Leadership. We see it in nation after nation, people after people, different solutions to it, but a longing to find some way that people might be led well for their good. And as we're beginning a new series in the book of 1 Samuel, that's what we're going to see across this book. It's one of the reasons we're calling this series In Search of a King, because that's a key theme in 1 Samuel. As we're going to see God's people longing for leadership as they're experiencing corrupt leadership. They're experiencing the, the ramifications of sinful leaders. They're longing for a king. Now, they're longing for a human king, of which there is some value. But their need and our need is actually much deeper than simply a good human leader. We need more. And so today we're going to see corrupted leadership. Yet in the midst of that, hope. Hope for us today and also hope for eternity. So if you have a Bible, turn to the book of 1 Samuel, the 1 Samuel chapter 2. Today we'll be in 1 Samuel 2, starting in verse 12, and you can find it in the Bibles near you on page 226. Page 226. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible, open up a Bible app, just so you can see the text in front of you as we work through this passage today. If you're newer to reading the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers, so we'll start in chapter 2, uh, and, and the verse numbers are the smaller ones, so we'll start in verse 12, we'll work our way through verse 36. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one today as a gift. So at the back of the room, there's a stack of Bibles. There's a sign there following the service. Please grab one of those and take it with you as you go today. And then for all who are interested, we have some journals that we often give away as a part of a new series. So we have some now for 1 Samuel at the back and by the door. And if you open it up on the left-hand side, there's just the biblical text. Right-hand side, uh, some room for notes. Depending on how long the sermon is, that may or may not be enough room there uh, to follow along. But they're free to you. And so we'd like anybody who would like one to can take one at the back table also in the entryway as well. Well, so the second week in our series in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come. While the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fort brought up, the priest would take for himself. That is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, 
give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young man was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would, would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? That they would not listen to the voice of their father. For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. The boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. There came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house. He shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. This morning in our passage, we're going to see this emphasis. Be alert to the destructive power of rebellion and see God's gracious provision. 
be alert to destructive power of rebellion and see God's gracious provision. We'll look at this passage in three different scenes. So first we'll see corruption displayed. Second, correction resisted. And then third, comfort promised. So first, corruption displayed in verses 12 through 17. Last week as we began this book, we were introduced to a family that was in a small town, had no power, no authority, no influence. My name Elkanah and his two wives, Peninnah and Hannah. Peninnah had several children, but Hannah had none. And his heart was broken by this. And, and Peninnah, the other wife, provoked her as a, as a rival every year, reminding her that she had no children. Every year, the family would, would make their way to Shiloh to worship at the tabernacle. God had given a, the tabernacle a special tent where it would be set up in Shiloh, and God's people would gather there, and they would come and worship the Lord and offer sacrifices. So Elkanah and his wives would each year make their way there. After years of this brokenhearted suffering, Hannah went and prayed as she wept, praying that the Lord would give her a child. And we saw last week that, in fact, God did. God graciously answered her prayer and gave her a little boy who they named Samuel. She took care of him until he was weaned to the Lord, but then took him to the tabernacle. For she had promised the Lord, Lord, if you'll give him to me, I will give him back to you for his whole life. So she took the little boy, Samuel, to the tabernacle. And tabern he was then raised by Eli, the priest, and Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. So at the end of our passage, last week, chapter 2, verse 11, we saw this. Then Elkanah went to Ramah, and the boy, referring to Samuel, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. So we concluded last week, Samuel is in the tabernacle, ministering to the Lord. Our passage then, verse 12, takes a very drastic turn as the spotlight moves from Samuel to Eli's sons. Now, sometimes writers bury the lead. That's not what happens in this text. He cuts to the chase, and he says, they were worthless men. They did not know God. The sense of worthless here literally means sons of Belial, which means they were associated with death, destruction, wickedness, rebellion. This term later was associated with Satan himself. And we're told they did not know the Lord. This would be bad enough for any of the people of Israel, but these men were priests. Their, their entire life was to be knowing the Lord, knowing his ways, his law, seeking to obey and live in, in a godly way. And they were to teach others God's way. They were to lead God's people in worship of him and to offer sacrifices for God's people. And yet they did not know the Lord. I mentioned last week that the, the, the culture of the day, was 1 Samuel begins, is, is the culture that we find at the end of the book of Judges. In Judges 21-25, it says this, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So that's what's happening at the beginning of 1 Samuel. There's no king. Everyone does what was right in their own eyes. Now, that's true of the Israelites in general, but even more so, evidently, that's true of the priests, the leaders of God's people, are doing only what is right in their own eyes. And one of the key roles of the priests was to offer sacrifices to God at the tabernacle on behalf of God's people. 
So God's people would bring a variety of different animals that they would come as a sacrifice. And God's word had outlined certain ways that, that the priests were provided for from the sacrifice. So depending on the animal, a certain portion of the animal was to be given to the priest. This is how the priests were provided what they needed. That was God's good design to provide for the priest through that. But here we see these men were exploiting the people. For they would send their, their servants to the people as their boiling meat. And we're told they, they came with a fork. And undoubtedly, this was a large fork. And they stuck it into the boiling meat, trying to get as much as they possibly could. And they brought it out, and they took it home. This was not God's good design. But in time, it seems evidently they, they got tired of boiled meat. And these priests said, we want something more than boiled meat. We want the best meat, and we want to grill it ourselves. So they would go to the people before the sacrifice, before it's even cooked, and they would say to us, give us the meat before the fat is burned, meaning before the sacrifice. We want to choose the choicest meat so they can grill it themselves. And this also was not God's good design. And we see that clearly in verse 17. Look down at verse 17. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. So they were sinning against God's people, the people they were representing, the people they were offering the sacrifices for, but even more than that, they were sinning against God himself. Now, what fueled their sin? Well, undoubtedly, a driving part of it was simple greed. God was providing for them through his designed means, what they needed, but in their mind, it just wasn't enough. But in addition to greed, it seems also to have been a, a sense of entitlement. We deserve more. Well, we are serving as a priest, after all. We're serving all these people, so we're entitled not just to this meat, but the very best meat. So we deserve for this sacrifice that we're making. Underneath it all, Pride, pride that had taken root in their hearts, which fueled then the greed and the entitlement. And these led to their misuse of their authority over the people. Greed, entitlement, pride were dangerous and devastating sins then for them. And dangerous and devastating sins today for us. Greed is a sin that is typically easy to see in others, so very hard to see in ourselves. Easy to say, wow, he must really be greedy. And yet so easily we can find a way to justify what's actually probably greed in our own heart. Now, some of you might say, I'm a poor student. I have no money. I've just got debt. How can I be greedy? But of course, it's very possible to be greedy with nothing. In addition to greed, we have entitlement. Where we say, I deserve this. I have a right to this. And we have pride that so easily takes root in our hearts. Friend, I wonder if you think about your own life, your own heart, your own mind, where, where might greed have taken up residence in your heart? 
Where do you find comparisons to others? Jealousy, envy of others. What about entitlement? How does that show up with a roommate, with your family, in the workplace? As a student? Friend, where is pride thriving in your life? And because it's so difficult to discern on our own lives, that's why we need Christian community. We need other people who will help us see. Because so easily we can justify our choices and actions and make a good case, at least to ourselves. So friend, let's pray. Pray that God would help us to see, to discern, to be sensitive to the very real danger Greed, pride. So we see corruption displayed, but then second, we see correction resisted. Verses 18 to 26. It was bad enough that Hophni and Phinehas were doing what they were with the sacrifices, but but there's even more. Look down at verse 22. Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. At this point, Eli was quite old, so evidently he's not quite as directly involved in the work of the tabernacle. But undoubtedly, he was enjoying the fruits of their labors with the meat. All of them were consuming these choicest of meats. And apparently, word has reached him of how his sons were exploiting their power to sexually sin against these women who'd come to serve the Lord. They were at the tabernacle to serve the Lord, and these men were sinning against them. What horrific, sinful actions by these in power and authority. We see what Eli says to his sons, verse 23, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. So Eli brings correction Warning to his sons. Well, we'll see that in spite of the egregious sins, though, he actually took no action against them. In fact, it was really only a half-hearted warning. Eli continued, verse 25, If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father. So the sons were sinning against others, those who were bringing the sacrifice, they were sinning against these women. And God's word, it gives clarity. Here's what you should do if you sin against another person. So there's much guidance on what they could do, should do, to those they were sinning against. But they were not only sinning against others, but also against the Lord. Now God and his law had also given you know, means for us to address our sin against God. Well, what's the means of that? It is these, a sacrifice given to God It's a means of atoning for their sin, except they're the priests who are corrupt in their very offering of sacrifices. So so they could do nothing to atone for their own sin because of their contempt for God's design and his sacrifices. In the end of verse 25, they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put put them to death. So they resisted their father's correction. And then we see this weighty and sobering statement. It was the will of the Lord to put them to death. 
Now, these sons had willfully continued in sin against God. This was no one-off sin. They had chosen to reject and rebel against God, and they were responsible for these sinful actions. These were their actions, choices they had made to rebel against God, and because of their sin, they in every way deserved the judgment of God. And now we're told at this point, it was the will of God that they would not have another opportunity to repent. Previously, they had plenty of opportunities to repent. But now they would face the judgment of God that they deserved. God had decided they had gone far enough, too far in their rebellion, so he would give them up to their sin. One author says it this way, their hardness was both their own choice and God's judgment on them for that choice. It was like the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in the days of Moses. In the book of Exodus, we see both that Pharaoh hardened his own heart and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. These men were responsible for their sinful actions. And they had an even greater responsibility because they were priests after all. They knew exactly what God's law had said. They were not innocent Knowing God's way, they're intentionally rejecting God's law. Thoroughly rebellious, unrepentant, and now facing the judgment that they deserve. And the Bible tells us that all people, all of us, are born into sin. And we very quickly embrace sin. That we're all corrupted through and through because of our sin. But God in his kindness gives us time. He's patient. That at some point we might hear and believe and, and turn back to Christ by faith. And friend, if you've been wandering from God, it's our prayer today. You would turn back to God today. God has brought you here, we believe. We don't think it's an accident that you're here. So it's our prayer that you would turn back today. You, you may have more opportunities, but we never know how many opportunities we have. So friend, turn back to God today. We see that Eli, the father, failed by not taking any action. Now, he could not stop his sons from all of their sin. But he did have the authority to remove them as priests. So at the very least, they could not sin in these ways they were sinning as priests. Why didn't he? He knew what they're doing. He's clearly concerned about it. Why didn't he remove them from their role? It seems it's likely a mixture of his love for his sons, his loyalty to them. He likely didn't want to have a, a painful, difficult confrontation that, that could even mar or break his relationship with his son. But he should have loved and loved enough to confront his sons. He should have cared more for their souls than he cared about his relationship with them. For it would have been better for their souls, even if there had been a hard conversation that might have marred his relationship, even broken his relationship with them for a time, if it caused them to turn back, that would have been a more loving action to Eli did not ultimately help his sons by allowing them to continue in this sin. 
Oh, he may have preserved his relationship with them. Evidently he did, but at what cost? By not being willing to confront, he actually contributes to their condemnation. So there absolutely must be love, but we must be careful and thoughtful. But friend, love sometimes must confront. Sometimes confrontation is the very most loving thing that we can do. Now, this is not only a challenge for Eli, but for many parents. As kids grow up, and as kids begin to wander from the Lord. And so parents who love Jesus, but also love their kids, face a choice. Will they thoughtfully, lovingly confront their adult kids who are wandering from the Lord? Will they hold to the truth of God's word, even if it risks their relationship, if they're convinced it could be for the good of their adult children's soul? Or parents face the temptation, will they shift their theology to match the theology of their kids? Often kids who are now calling something not sin that God calls sin. And so often I've seen parents who for years have followed Jesus begin to adapt their theology so they can maintain a relationship with their kids. But it plays out not only just in families, but in other relationships, with, with siblings, with close friends, who we love so much, we care about them, but we know they're wandering. We feel a desire inside that we need to do something to perhaps intervene, and yet we fear loving them to the extent that we won't address it. We fear losing the relationship. And so we're silent. We sometimes face this within the life of the church family as well. When, when a member of the church wanders continually from Christ, and we face the question, will we love them enough to confront even if it might mar our relationship with them. Friends, the temptation is not to say anything. Friend, do you see that we could potentially preserve our relationship with them? They, they still love us, even as they wander further and further from the Lord. It's not actually a loving choice for us. It is unloving towards them to just let them continue wandering. Now, it takes great wisdom to discern so one of the many reasons, friends, we, we need a church community so we have other Christians with us to help us think through relationship with our kids, relationship with others, relationship with other members, because we don't want to do this carelessly or quickly. But we also have to know our own temptation to either confront too much or to never confront. Now, if we look at our passage, it really seems like a hopeless story. The priests themselves, God's representative, are corrupted and now facing judgment. And yet scattered across our text are just little glimmers of hope. It's sort of like when winter drags on in Boston sometimes. It doesn't always do that, but, but sometimes it drags on. If you're newer to Boston, you know, sometimes it still snows in July. So, no, actually it doesn't. So, so, but let's just say it's, it's a longer winter, right? You're, you're tired of the snow and it's March. And there's a pretty good amount of snow. And you feel like it's just winter everywhere. But even then, friends, as you're walking around, if you look closely, some of the trees, you can see even snow-covered, but little buds starting to show up. 
or even through the snow, you might see a tulip just beginning to pop up. So even though it's dark winter, there are glimmers of hope. So it is in our passage, in the midst of corruption and sin and rebellion, there are these glimpses of hope. And you may have heard it as I read the text, or if you read this text on your own, because across this passage, there are several interruptions. Now, what are the interruptions in our text? Or more accurately, who is the interruption? It is this guy, Samuel. Do you remember at the end of our passage, chapter 2, verse 11, the boy, referring to Samuel, ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Then verses 12 through 17, we see the corruption of Hophni and Phinehas in their sin. And then verse two, chapter 2, verse 18, we again see Samuel ministering before the Lord. We're told of his parents' yearly visit, of the Lord's blessing on Hannah in verse 21. And at the end of verse 21, the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. We see Eli's failure, verses 22 to 25. Then verse 26, now the young man Samuel continued to grow in both stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And then beyond our text today, first, first verse of chapter 3, look at 3.1. Now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. Now when you read this text, you might think, wow, this author is kind of erratic. He does this, he jumps to Samuel. He does this, he jumps to Samuel. Our friends, instead of being erratic, God has inspired the author to just give these hints of grace in the midst of corruption. We have this contrast. Eli, his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, corrupted through and through. Here's Samuel. Samuel wears an ephod. Even as a young boy, he looks like a priest. The, the boys are, are harming people. Samuel is ministering to the Lord. Samuel's growing in stature just like another boy who later his parents would take him to the temple. He would grow in stature. See, in Luke chapter 2, Jesus himself at the temple growing in maturity and stature. So we see that tragically sin was destroying God's people, especially their leaders. They're thoroughly corrupted by sin, but God was always at work with young Samuel in the midst of the tabernacle. Friends, God is always at work. No matter how dark the corruption is, no matter how dark the sin is, no matter how dark a culture is, God is always at work. God's at work today around the world. God's at work today in greater Boston. So we see correction resisted. And then third, we see comfort promised. Comfort promised in verses 27 through 36. We see in verse 27 that this one called a man of God comes to Eli. He's an unnamed prophet. And he speaks of what God had done in the past in the family line of Eli. So Eli's family were the Levites set apart by God for this key role. So he asks these questions. Have I not chosen your people? The answer, of course, is yes. God had chosen them. God had given them this, entrusted a very special role to them. But then he confronts Eli. Look at what he says in verse 29. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest part of every offering of my people Israel? The Lord says to Eli, here's what you're actually doing. You're elevating your sons over me. You're loving your sons more than you love me. 
And then judgment is pronounced on Eli and on his family. Eli's told his house will be cut off. There will be no more old men from his family. And in verse 34, the peak of the judgment, he's told that both of his sons will die on the same day as a judgment from the Lord. And we'll see that in the book of 1 Samuel as we move forward. So by the end of verse 34, it's the darkest day of judgment. And there's no light at all. Darkness has fallen on Eli and on his family. But in the midst of darkness... There's a glimmer of hope again, a promise given to God's people, a promise of comfort. Look at verse 35. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house. And he shall go out and in before my anointed forever. So even though Eli's family, they're finished, they will have no more role going forward. He makes a promise. I will not leave you without a priest. I will provide a priest, and I will provide a faithful priest to you, unlike Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. Now, this promise has multiple levels of fulfillment, as so often we see in God's word. When we read it, we first wonder, well, is this referring to Samuel? Is that who this faithful priest is? Well, we do see faithfulness, not perfection. We do see faithfulness in Samuel, but Samuel's function, we'll see, is actually more a prophet than a priest. So you think, well, this may not be actually referring to Samuel, though it could be. But the description continues to, we think about, in the years that would follow, there would be this one called Zadok, a man who would be a faithful priest. One of the Levites who would be not perfect, but true and faithful. Fulfilling this promise to an extent. The description in verse 35 seems to go beyond what just a merely human priest can do. I will build him a sure house. He will go in and out before my anointed forever. And he'll do all that is in my heart. So it seems there's someone beyond Samuel, beyond Zadok. It's pointing to another priest who was to come. And that priest has come. And that priest is Jesus Christ. He, the priest, unlike any other. Jesus was perfect, unlike Hophni and Phinehas. Jesus never sinned. Jesus never took advantage of those under him. He never took. Jesus always gave. It was his very nature to generously give and give and give. And he perfect high priest gave the perfect final sacrifice. And what was the final sacrifice that Jesus, the perfect high priest, offered? It was himself. He gave himself on the cross in the place of sinners and rebels like us, an act of love for those thoroughly corrupted by sin, running from God. And if you're not a Christian, we're so glad you would spend part of your Sunday with us. I want you to know this, this is the story of Christianity, not of good people, for we're not good people. Not of righteous people, because we're not by nature righteous at all. It's the story of a Savior who came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. 
the very Son of God who came near and lived a perfect, sinless life. He never sinned like the priests in our text. And he willfully chose the cross, that on the cross he would take the judgment we deserve in our place. He would bear our judgment that stunningly his righteousness would be credited to us. So through his death and resurrection, he provides salvation as a free gift to any and all who'd receive it by faith. So it's available to you today. This may be very new to you. This may be the very first time you've heard of this. And we, we pray that you would feel comfortable exploring Jesus with us. So that might be, for now, simply coming back next Sunday morning and hearing and singing together. Or at some point now or in the future, you may be interested in talking with someone about Jesus. We would love to do that. We won't try to pressure you to anything, but to answer questions or read the Bible with you. If you're interested in that, you can write that on your Connect card on the back. You can just check that box. Or I'll be at the door on the back. I'd be happy to talk with you. Or if you came with a friend or a family member and they're a Christian, I'm certain they would love to tell you more about Jesus. And friends, for those who are Christians, we have a sure hope an unbreakable hope because of our perfect high priest, Jesus. The book of Hebrews is so helpful to us as it, as it portrays what it is that Christ has accomplished. And Hebrews 7, 23 to 27 says this. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. Friends, that's what Jesus Christ did. He came, offered himself once for all. And if you remember earlier in the text, Eli had asked a very important question, verse 25. He said, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? It's a very important question. If we sin against God, who can help us? Who can intervene? Who can reconcile things between us and God? We have no means of doing that ourselves. No human is sufficient for that. Who can do it? Jesus can do it. Jesus has done it through his cross. He interceded for us through his death on the cross. He continues interceding for us day by day by day. Friends, Jesus has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And the good news is his work is complete perfected. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14 says this, and every priest stands daily at his service. This was the case when Hebrews was written, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time. Those who are being sanctified. Do you hear? There are no more sacrifices needed. We may wonder, why do Christians not bring sacrifices when we gather on Sunday? It's a reasonable question if you've read the Old Testament. Well, why don't you have to carry a lamb or a goat? It's because there are no more sacrifices needed. 
Those sacrifices were not sufficient. They were preparatory. Jesus, though, the final sacrifice has been given. That's why we never have to bring a sacrifice. He is the perfect sacrifice. Because Jesus is the very Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the faithful and final high priest. That's why we don't have priests anymore. So we don't need priests. Jesus is the final priest. And he is the anointed and reigning king. So friends, because of this, there is hope for sinners like us. There's hope for you. This hope is not found in what we do or what we will do, but in Christ's work. So there's good news for salvation as a gracious savior. It's good news when we've been wandering from God. After maybe that's where you've been, wandering from God lately. It may be you've literally been far from God and far from his people. Or maybe you've been physically near attending a church or attending this church regularly. But you know in your heart, your mind, you're very far from God. Friends, there's no better day to return to your gracious, welcoming Father than to do that today. And friends, for we who are Christians, we have, have a sure, unbreakable hope in this finished work of Christ. So we're secure in our always faithful priest, Savior, and King Jesus. And we're empowered now by him, by the Spirit, to continue to grow in grace. So this week, it's possible, friends, for us to fight greed and grow in generosity. It's possible to resist entitlement by his grace, make progress, and to fight pride and grow in humility. Not perfectly, but, friend, we really can make progress as Christ is at work in us. So we can live this week, friends, with an alertness to the reality of sin. And its destructive nature, but also with hope. Christ is faithful. He's with us and in us by the Spirit. He's the faithful high priest. He will help us make progress until the end.